Well, good morning, everybody. <laughs> There's a lot more energy here today. It's, it's good. Um, you know, a couple, a couple of things go, go through my head and prep for this morning. One of them is, you know, back in March, I remember um, Monica and I were in India, and all of a sudden the whole world started to shut down, and we had to leave India early and fly all the way back here. And I remember, I mean, we're a family of five living in 750 square feet. And then they're like, We're, there's a freeze and you're not allowed to go outside. And I remember being stuck inside with three kids and 750 square feet, which is not problematic in the slightest. Uh, <laughs> and and I, just, I just remember thinking, oh my goodness, like how long is this going to go on for? And this year is going to take forever. And then I'm like, it's Advent. Like the end of the year is like a few weeks away. Like where did the year go? It seems to, it seems to have accelerated. I don't know. That's been my experience. Um, but yeah, this year just seems to have flown in. Um, as we're turning in Advent, I was trying to think of um, just some, some fun Advent stories or Christmas stories for me and my family. And um, I, I didn't share it for service, but I was like, actually, I think I will. So, you know, <laughs> when I think about um, interesting Christmas moments, I remember one year, so I grew up with an older brother and a younger brother. And I remember one year at Christmas, we were... Um, I'd, I'd saved up and I'd gotten my brother, but both of my brothers, a pretty decent gift. I was younger. I probably spent like 20 bucks on it and thought like that was really pricing out for my brothers. And then I remember this, this one day I saw my brother like, like last minute wrapping Christmas presents and he'd gone to like the equivalent of Dollar Tree and he'd bought a packet of three plastic mechanical pencils. And I saw him wrapping them up and I was like, geez, my brother got me three plastic mechanical pencils for a buck for Christmas. So you can imagine my delight when I get to Christmas morning and he hands me my gift and I unwrap it. <laughs> and he'd wrapped me one of them, he'd kept the other two for himself. <laughs> and I was like, so, so guys, don't, don't get a single plastic mechanical pencil for 30 cents for your siblings for Christmas. Uh, get something a little nicer. But yeah, <laughs> I always look back on that one and I laugh. Anyway, um, welcome to Advent. <laughs> it's that time of year as we're getting ready for, for the end of the year and trying to think about what is God doing in our midst? What does this time of year mean? And we're calling this series, Emmanuel, God with us, because at the end of the day, we're asking the question, what really does it mean and how does it matter? And what's the impact of this truth, Emmanuel, God with us? And I have this question in the back of my mind, if we really could, as a church and as believers, grasp this concept, like God is with us, if we truly grasp that, what would it do for our faith and the way we live things out in the world? So um, we're launching into this season, it's Advent, and I want to kind of reorient us to what Advent is because I think we've misunderstood and miscommunicated and kind of readapted Advent, and it's lost some of its significance. So I mean, the, the word, it comes from the Greek, uh, the Latin word, which, which literally means like arrival or to come. So it's the word for like the coming of Christ. But when it comes to Advent, the purpose of Advent is not to spend all your time 
looking at the Christmas story and anticipating the arrival of Jesus. That's part of Advent, but the whole purpose of Advent was to be looking ahead to the second coming of Jesus and his return. And so this whole concept of Advent is actually about the return of Christ more than his original arrival. But we look at both side by side because looking back at Jesus' coming and his initial incarnation sets the tone and the hope and the expectation and gives us the confidence that he will return. So, so this season is not so much supposed to be looking back on the Christmas story to understand the Christmas story and spend all our time there as if Christmas Day with our presence is the conclusion of Advent. We look back at that story so that we can anticipate the future coming. That, uh, and so everything about Christmas is just a foreshadowing of his return. And so that's what Advent is truly about, is anticipating his return. Um, we're going to look over the next four weeks at the four themes of Advent. And so, I mean, different people, different church calendars, different traditions use different themes. But the sort of more commonly accepted themes are hope, peace, love, and joy. So over the next few weeks, we're going to look at these. I'm going to look at hope today. And then I have a friend, Sean Page, who's going to come next week and talk about peace. And Sean is the, he's the chaplain at McLaren Youth Corrections Facility down in Woodburn. And actually, he is the only chaplain for youth corrections in all of Oregon. So he's, he's responsible for every minor who's committed like a serious offense in the state. Um, and so he is someone that is uniquely gifted and called to that ministry and has a unique perspective on things like hope and peace and joy and what those look like for a community that needs a lot of love poured into them in order to experience the grace of God. So he's going to come next week. I'm excited for that. Um, but, but I want you to look at these words for a second, hope, peace, joy, and love. God, it seems to me, like God in prepping Advent was anticipating a season like we currently live in the middle of. Like racial unrest, election unease, global pandemic, and then add to that the, the family issues that come when you regather, the, the, the financial issues that come with Christmas and this particular season with job losses and people not making money. Like it feels like in this season, words like hope and peace and joy and love are extra poignant. And so I found myself, as, as I was preparing for this, I found myself thinking about people in the world right now who are feeling despairing and despondent and depressed because of the things that they're facing in the world right now that, that, that are so overbearing for them. Those people need hope. In the middle of their despair, they need us to come with the message of hope. I think of people that are fearful and anxious because there's a pandemic and, and we're worried if we catch it, if it's going to make us ill, if, if, if we're going to pass it on to someone, or if it's all a hoax and it's all made up. There's just fear. There's anxiety. Those people need peace. Uh, we need peace in the midst of the fear and the anxiety. There are people that are just overwhelmed by everything that's going on. It feels like just one thing after another, and, and it's oppressive. They need to experience joy. And then I think of all the people who are cut off from family, who are shut in their home on their own. They're isolated from their community. They feel lonely. They need an encounter with the love of God. And so it feels like when, when these uh, Advent themes were set up, it feels like all the way back then, it was preparing us for this year and all the things that, that we're going to walk through. And so 
This is, I feel like these are important messages for us to reorient ourselves in the middle of this season of life uh, and, and to add all of that into the preparation uh, for Christmas coming. Um, So what I want to do, I want to start by looking at a really familiar passage. We're going to jump into the beginning of Matthew and and look at the Christmas story because it's important that we go back and remember what we're doing and and, and look at this story as an image of hope and as a foreshadowing of the coming that we are awaiting. Um, So this is Matthew chapter 1 starting in verse 18 and it says this, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. So we'll just pause there and just remember, this is the message of hope that we're all excited about. The teen pregnancy, Joseph, a man of the law who's Uh, betrothed has just informed him that she's pregnant he knows that he's not the father and I won't explain how he knows that but he knows (laughs) they're not married yet he knows he's not the father and she's coming and saying by the way the Holy Spirit has impregnated me and I'm gonna have a child (laughs) a little bit messy um, and then Joseph is there in the background. He loves the Lord. He, he honors this woman. He wants to do right by God. So he's going to divorce her quietly. So not to bring as much shame on the situation as there possibly could be. So here we are. We're looking at the message of hope, this story that we're all excited about. And it's a teen pregnancy, an out-of-wedlock conception, and then a potential divorce is how God decides we're going to la- launch this hope message for Advent. Right? <laughs> Um, God's way is not always our way. And, and this story is not always the clean, sanitized, like nativity with the angels and, and the shepherds and the wise men and their gifts and that lovely part of it we celebrate. It's a messy story. And, and a good exercise is to sit with this story and put yourself in Mary's shoes or put yourself in Joseph's shoes. If God came to you as a woman in here and said, like, you're pregnant, and, and I'm the father, now go tell your husband. <laughs> like, what, what are you going to feel? Like the, the, the fear, the shame, the guilt, the, am I going crazy? And then as a husband, just imagine that your partner comes to you and says, like, I'm pregnant, and you know it's not you. <laughs> You're not the dad. And, 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 and what are you going to be thinking and feeling, and how do you deal with this? And just the mess of that situation. This is God's speciality to take situations that are chaotic and messy and dirty like this and use them as the breeding ground for hope. Um, Let's jump on and start in verse 20. What happens? After he considered this, (laughs) that's a polite way of putting what Joseph goes through. After he considered this revelation, an angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream and says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus, because he'll save his people from their sins. Jesus literally means Yahweh saves. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Um, So, 
He's quoting here Old Testament Isaiah passage, and we need to remember the context here because the context is important. Isaiah is speaking to King Ahaz in Judah, and God is making this promise to him through Isaiah that God will destroy all of his enemies, that all of these oppressive forces out there that are coming against them. God's saying, I will destroy them. I will take them down. And here's the sign that you'll get that will prove that I'm going to do what I said. There's going to be a young woman. She's not specified who she is. She's going to bear a son, and he's going to be called Emmanuel. And so he's saying that you're facing this enemy out there, and the way you're going to know and have confidence that I am going to defeat this enemy is that this child is going to be born in a, in a unique way, and he's going to be given this name, uh, and that's going to be your sign or your confirmation that I'm going to destroy the enemy that I'm going to destroy. So when we're fast-forwarding into the Advent story, this is not like Jesus came to die for a sins. Like, th 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 this is not all of the Christmas story. This story is there is an enemy out there that is standing against us, and God has promised that that enemy will be defeated. And as part of that promise, he set a sign in place that a child was going to be born who was going to be Emmanuel, God with us, and that birth was going to be the confirmation for us that God is going to destroy the enemy. And we get to look back on what he did for Ahaz, and we get to look at what he did in the person of Jesus, and that gives us the confirmation, the, the confidence that what he said about the defeat of sin and darkness and the defeat of the evil forces in the world is going to happen. And it sends our eyes ahead to the future coming of Jesus for that moment when he comes and he reestablishes his kingdom here and the enemy is finally defeated. So in this moment, this phrase, Emmanuel, which means God with us, is a declaration of how God goes about defeating the power of darkness and is a symbolic moment promising what's about to come. Let's jump on the next couple of verses. Verse 24, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. So we've just been told earlier on that, that Joseph is a man who's faithful to the law. He's a God-fearing man. So when an angel appears to him and says, believe your wife, your almost wife, that, that, that this pregnancy is from me, take her home, marry her, Joseph knows in that moment what is about to happen. As a God-fearing man marrying a young woman uh, takes her to his home, and they suddenly announce to everybody in the world that she's pregnant against the law, against the covenant, against God's standard. So in this moment, he is choosing to embrace the shame of her situation. He is choosing to offer protection to someone whose society would give no protection to. He's choosing to lay aside his own desire, his own vision for his future, his own reputation in order to love this woman. Um, and I think that's an amazing part of this story because, you know, Matthew hones in on, on Joseph. We spend most of our time at Christmas, and I think rightly so, focusing on Luke's account, which really zooms in on Mary and her response. This woman full of grace who consents to carry the, this, this baby and consents to, to be the, carrying the burden of shame of this young woman out of wedlock who's, who's pregnant and, and probably for most of her life accused of committing adultery. 
um, and, and this child being called names as a result of that. So you've got this Mary who is, is seeing the shame, this, this horrible situation, and willing to say, God, I'm yours, and I will bear that for you. And then in Matthew saying, you know, it's not just her, Joseph too has to bear that and take that upon himself um, in, in order to fulfill the things that, that God is calling us to do. And so it's just this amazing start to the story. All the shame, the guilt, the, the apparent breaching of the law, they're not breaching the law, but, but, but just how it looks in the mess culturally. And yet in the middle of all of that, God is literally birthing hope into the world and bringing light into the darkness. So if it was you, <laughs> if an angel was coming to you and saying you're, you're pregnant and, and it's mine, what would your response be? Honestly, it's like, I can't have kids anymore. I'm too old. Well, now you're Sarah. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, what if you're, you're, you're in Joseph's situation and someone's coming to tell you this? What if your child is coming to you and saying, like, I'm pregnant. I'm a teenager. I'm pregnant. And I promise I didn't sleep with anybody. God appeared to me in a dream. Like, what would your response be? Just imagine the weight of that that God is birthing hope into the middle of. I want to situate this passage, though, in, in both, like, the, the, the whole salvation context, but, but in Matthew's context. Like, up to this point, he's been listing the genealogy. Let's, let's look at what he says. Matthew, I'm going to look at verse 1 and then verse 17, which is right before we read. He, this is Matthew launching this story of the salvation of the world, the gospel of Jesus. He says, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Yada, 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 begat, 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 begotten, begotten, begotten. And it says, thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. So what is, what is Matthew trying to do here? He's trying to situate that this person is the Messiah that Israel has been waiting for. So let's remember what that means. Back in the beginning, you've got Adam and Eve in the garden, and they fall. And as part of the curse God says that, like, these things are going to happen. There's going to be pain in childbirth. It's going to be hard to work the ground, all those things. But he tells the woman that you're going to give birth, and, and your seed is going to stomp the head of the snake, and the snake is going to pinch his ankle. And, and so this moment of prophecy right at the beginning, that one of the children descending from Eve is going to be the one that finally defeats the enemy and overturns the curse. And so when Adam and Eve have their first kid and they hold that kid, they have this expectation inside, this is the one, this is the kid that's going to defeat the enemy so that we can get back into the garden with the Lord. And then one kid kills the other kid. And then they have more kids, and with, with every kid, it's like, is this the one? And every generation that comes, when the firstborn Jewish kid is born, they're looking at the kid going, I wonder if this is the one. Is this the Messiah that we're waiting for that's going to defeat sin and darkness and overthrow the curse and restore us? So as Matthew is, I mean, you read through the, gospel, the, the, the Old Testament, anytime you see some kind of genealogy or list of names, like every firstborn is like a potential Messiah till you get to the line of the kings, and it's like, this guy's of, of this, this lineage, 
And, and then it's like, well, maybe, maybe Reuben's going to be the one that's going to carry the messianic line. No, he screws up. Maybe it's Levi and Simeon. No, they screw up. Well, Judah. Judah now gets to be the one that's going to carry this name forward. So they're always waiting. And you can trace that line of the Messiah coming through and fulfilling all of these prophecies. So, so when, when Matthew's starting this book and he's saying, you know, for two, th- well, for how many thousands of years? 8,000 years? I don't know how many generations it is. Matthew's been poetic by saying 14 and 14 and 14. We can tell from Chronicles and Kings there's names missed out in there. He's given the summary that's easy to memorize of the history that proves that Jesus is the Messiah that they've been waiting for. So you've got like, I don't know, six, 8,000 years of generations of people that have been waiting for this Messiah to be born. And finally, here comes the one that was promised that's going to bring this restoration. So here's, here's the little side note here. They waited for thousands of years for the fulfillment of the promise that God made in Genesis 3. And then we sit today and we go, you know, we've been waiting for 2,000 years for Jesus to come back and he's not come back yet. Why isn't he here? God's plan spans a much longer dimension than ours does. And so they waited for six, seven, eight thousand years. We're only 2,000 years along. But with every generation, they weren't like, oh, this is too long. I'm not expecting anymore. Certainly when they're in exile and they're walking away from the Lord, their expectation wanes. And, but, but God-fearing people would always be looking at their child going, is this the one? And that's the posture we're expected to have in Advent as we look back at Jesus and understand that he's the fulfillment of this longing that people had that's supposed to give us hope and confidence that God will fulfill the longing that the church has been waiting for for 2,000 years. It's coming. And just as Jesus was born at the right time and the right way to fulfill all the promises that God spoke, so Jesus will return at the right time and the right way in order for God's work to be accomplished. So this is like a huge story um, that that has this past element of, of looking at God's fulfillment of promise and the birth of Jesus, but all of that has the purpose of turning our eyes onto the promise that we're awaiting fulfillment of, which is the the coming of Jesus that our souls long for. So, Emmanuel, God with us, this child that was waited, who will return and once again be God with us as it was in the beginning. So, we're looking at at the theme of hope. (laughs) And so, let me throw up a definition of hope. That sounds like I'm going to vomit it. (laughs) <laughs> we'll put on the screen a definition of hope. Um, and, and, and here's what some of the, the Greek and, and Hebrew Bibles would describe hope as. And my um, typo in here. The looking forward to something with some reason for confidence expecting fulfillment. So hope is the looking forward to something with some reason for confidence that expects fulfillment. And you can use this, this phrase, expectant waiting. So especially in the Old Testament, the word that they use for hope, when you, a lot of the time when you read things that say, wait for the Lord, it's the same word as hope, because hope carries this idea of waiting with an expectancy. And so we live in this season of, of God's plan where we live between two kind of competing realities. Reality number one is all the stuff that God's promised, the work that Jesus did on the cross and in his resurrection, and the promise of his return to bring restoration. 
So that's all our real lived reality that exists right now. But then in the middle of that, we have our current situation with all of the struggles that we face. Elections, unrest, uh, global pandemics, cancer, uh, family brokenness, people in our families not walking with the Lord, all of that mess, financial struggle is the reality that we face. And so we have to bring together this, ec- this expectant waiting for the things that God's promised with the reality of the chaos of the situation that, that we're living in. And that place is where we encounter hope and where hope works its best. So I want to look at a, a couple of phrases, just, just thoughts about hope um, to help just reorient us and reframe this part of the Christmas story and as we're walking in to, to this Advent season. So, so first of all, um, hope shines brightest in the darkness. Hope shines brightest in the darkness. We've got all these prophecies about Jesus, the light coming for the Gentiles, the light in the darkness. And um, we see this Christmas story. It's set up with this horrible, dark situation, teen pregnancy, out of wedlock conception, divorce, shame, like probably shunned from family. All of that is, is in there. In the middle of that darkness births hope. And hope is brighter and because of where God is birthing it in this moment, I, I want to throw up, uh, I'm going to stop saying throw up. We're going to put up here on the screen, First Peter 1, verse 3 through 7, and just look at a statement about hope. And, and I want you to notice again the concept of hope and the concept of, of, of chaos or difficulty or struggle. And these things, they, they go together. So, so Peter writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into what? A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power. Presence. We're shielded by his power. Um, until the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. In all of this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. It's this amazing declaration of this living hope that comes through the work that Jesus did. This inheritance that is kept for us, some of it is we are accessing now, some of it is awaiting us. I think there's more of it that we can embrace now than many of us walk in. But it's, it's this line in the middle that, that just, in all of this, you greatly rejoice, all of these gifts and the blessing that's coming, God's shielding power, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. I don't know how Peter intended this to be, to be spoken, but it sounds really like flippant to me. You know, and, you, know you, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Let's remember that Paul is writing to a church that's been scattered because Nero is persecuting Christians, and his favorite way to do it was to take Christians, stick them on a big pole, and set them on fire, and decided that humans made, Christian humans made really fun candles for lighting the city. So these are people impaled and burned alive for everybody to see, and they're coming after the church, they're stealing their property, they're killing, they're beaten up, they're whatever. <laughs> and Peter's like, you know, though you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, uh, you're greatly rejoicing in this. So, so he's saying in the middle of that time,
type of hardship and chaos and darkness, this living hope is enough uh, to keep us secure in the Father that, that, that we love and, and, and who loved us and saved us. Um, but the line before it, I drew attention to, you know, the inheritance and kept for, in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power. What he's not saying is you're shielded by God's power and so all of these horrible things aren't going to happen to you. Nero's not going to be able to kill a Christian. No Christian's going to be persecuted. That's not what he's saying. He's saying somehow in the middle of all of that difficulty and the pain and the loss and the grief and the suffering, God is able to shield your faith so that it can endure and persevere and grow stronger and bear fruit in the world around about us. Um, and again, it's a statement of presence. They're shielded by God's power in the middle of the difficulty. And so again, you come back to this current day as we look at uh, coronavirus and its impact. We look at other illnesses that, that are out there. We look at political issues and, and how you feel about what things look like moving forward. In the middle of all of that, God is able to shield our faith, protect our intimacy with Him, grow us, uh, grow our faith, and bear fruit through us. Um, so hope always uh, shines brightest in the darkness. Number two, um, hope involves the risk of pain. This is an interesting one to think about. Think about the times where you use the phrase, you know, I hope. Like, I really, really, really hope I get this job implies there's a high chance that I might not get it and I might be disappointed. Like, I really hope it's, that this, it's sunny on my wedding day because we're doing an outdoor wedding implies there's a chance that it might rain and my day might not go the way I wanted it to. I really, really, really want this house implies there's a chance that you won't get the house that you put an offer in uh, that you really, 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 really like. But, you know, I, I'm going in for surgery. I hope this surgery turns out the way I want it to. Um, I hope my child is born healthy. That word hope carries with it the risk that things won't turn out the, the way we want them to. So hope always involves the risk of pain, but it's the, the ability to trust God in the middle of it that even with that pain, that his presence will make a difference. Um, Romans 8 is such an amazing chapter about the work that the Spirit does in our life, but starting in verse 22, um, Paul writes this, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. You know, a really hope-filled statement. <laughs> Darkness, the whole earth is groaning like the pains of childbirth. I don't know what that's like, but I know a lot you do, and it doesn't look pleasant. Um, and then he says, but not only creation, but also ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly. We're in pain as we look at the world round about, as we wait eagerly. See that eager expectation, the language of hope. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope, if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So hope is tied to the things that we don't have and the expectation that we will receive them. You don't walk outside and go, man, I sure hope I have a green Ford Escape out there to drive home in. That's just my hope. 
I sure hope I have three kids that will drive me up the wall during a pandemic in 750 square feet. Like, you don't hope for those things. They're the reality. You hope for the things that we don't have yet and the things that we're longing for, that we want to see. Um, And so in a season like this, where there are so many things that we want that are not the way the world is, as we're walking through the Advent season and we're like, Jesus came, but the world doesn't look the way we want it to look, the way it will be when he returns, it's the breeding ground for hope. You know, I hope this church will turn out this way. I hope we'll grow this kind of fruit. Um, it's a hope, an expectation, a longing. But, but you know, there, there's a, a subtle distinction and shift that happens internally between hope and want. You know? I hope we get this house can turn into, I want this house. The, I hope this church looks this way in the next year can become, I want this church to look this way, and I'm going to do everything in my ability to make that happen. Um, I, I hope for this job can easily become, I want this job, and it turns into the idolatry of the career path that you're walking into. So there's this very subtle difference between I hope and I want. What's the difference? Presence. Jesus. Like, hope is rooted in the longing for what Jesus wants for this world. Now, there are good wants that we have. It's okay to want a nice house. It's okay to hope that God will provide. But the result of your attitude and actions when you don't get what you want tells you whether your hope is in him or whether you're acting out of the wants of your flesh. Um, Hope can be painful. (laughs) Hope shines in the darkness, but we want to be a people who are marked by hope. How, how do you cultivate hope? So let's look at three simple elements of cultivating hope, and, and how does this relate to Advent? So first of all, we cultivate hope by reflecting on God's work in the past, because that builds hope for God's work in the future, and that's part one of Advent. As we look back on Christ's work, we look at the work that he did, not just so that we can celebrate that Jesus was born, he died, and that's it, but so that we can have confidence that God does what he said he will do so that we can turn our eyes forward and have confidence that he will return and he will bring restoration to the world the way that, 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 we're, that he's promised. And part of that is, is testimony. It's looking back on what is the work that God has done in your life, the times you've been ill where you've experienced healing, the times where you've been lacking and God has provided the times where you've seen transformation in your life or in someone else's life in a way that you never expected. As we share those stories of how God is working, it increases hope, hope that God will do the same thing again. As you reflect back on your life and you're like, this is what I was like before Jesus, and I was, I was, I was running as far away from him and rebelling against him, and then Jesus saved me, and now my heart is oriented towards him. Or maybe your story is, I grew up in the church, and I was just a complacent Christian, and I wasn't really getting it, and I wasn't really living it, and then one day God captured me, and my life changed. As we reflect back on God's work there, it gives us the hope that when I look at this person over there who seems so far from God, that God can do that same work in him because he's done it in me. That as, I look at, as you look at kids that aren't walking with Jesus, you've seen God rescue someone else's kid from darkness to light. You've seen him rescue other family members from darkness to light. So it gives you hope that he can do the same thing in them. So we reflect back on God's past work 
when we reflect on the Christmas story to build hope for the things that are coming. And that brings the second part of this. How do you build hope? We bring the end of the story to bear on our current trials. We bring the end of the story to bear. The beautiful thing about Scripture is the end of the story has been told to us. Like Jesus is coming back. He's going to establish his kingdom. Evil is going to be defeated. There will be no more sin. You will be pursuing Jesus with nothing inside of you that gets in the way of that. Nothing to hinder you. No shame, no pain. There'll be no tears. There'll be no sadness. You'll never again have to watch a loved one die of an illness or be taken early or struggle with pain. And we'll never again have to deal with racial oppression or horrible governments or people that are terrorizing the world. We'll never have to deal with that stuff again because Jesus is going to return and put everything right. And what he did in the person of Jesus, what he's done in your life, and and, and then what he's told us about the end of the story, we bring that to bear on the issues that we're dealing with now. And it gives us hope. And we look at all the promises of Scripture. So there were so many promises and prophecies that pointed to the person of Jesus, but there are so many of those that still aren't fulfilled. And so we look at those promises that God has made for the inheritance that we're going to have, the riches, the glorified body. I can't wait for that one, you know. My glorified body, whatever that's going to look like. And, and uh, yeah, lying, lying with the lamb, like no more war, no more fighting, all of those things. We get to look at that end of the story, and we get to look at what we're experiencing now, and we get to bring that to bear. So, so what does that mean? It means you bring the past and the future to bear on the present, and that's where we experience hope. We look back in Advent, we look back on the Christmas story, the fulfillment of thousands of years of promise and prophecy. We look ahead to the second coming of Jesus and all of the promises that are coming, and we allow it to increase our hope. As I started, this whole thing is, we're calling the series Emmanuel, God with us, because at the end of the day, it's a story about presence. It's a story about God's presence. Um, And hope is tied to the presence of God. Hope is the difference between the situation you're facing without God and the situation you're facing with God in the middle of it. Um, That is what changes and gives us hope. Um, So the the whole Bible story is a story of presence, and I think we easily forget this. We make it about all sorts of things, like the beliefs that we have. We make it about the the way that we live. We make it about how our church is. We even make it about the mission in the world. But but above and under and over and around all of that is this concept of presence. You go right back to the beginning. It says, in the beginning, God created. So before anything existed was the presence of God. God was present. And then it said, he spoke, let there be light. And all of a sudden, this stuff happens. And let there, uh, no, before, he says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void. And darkness hovered over the face of the deep. And then it says that the spirit of God hovered over the face of the darkness. Darkness with the spirit's presence over the earth. And then God creates, and eventually he makes this garden, and he puts Adam and Eve in the garden. And what happens in the garden? God walks with them. So it's presence, God's presence with Adam and Eve in the garden. And then they disobey God. They're sent out from the garden. They're sent out from a, 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 a particular way of experiencing God's presence, but God's present everywhere. So even kicked out of the garden and that level of intimacy with God, God they still experience God's presence in the world. But then God goes, the story goes on, and you see these different people interacting with God, and God calls this people. 
And what does he say? He says, you're going to be my nation, Israel, and my presence is going to go with you. That's what's going to mark you different from all the nations of the world is my presence. And then within that people, they receive this revelation from God. They decide to build a temple. What did the temple represent? It was a physical place on the earth that marked God's presence. And the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies where God was present, and that impacted their whole community. And then as it goes on, the fulfillment of that whole temple system, the fulfillment of God's presence with the people of Israel is the person of Jesus who comes to live on the earth. And what is Jesus? God present on the earth. He's Emmanuel, God with us. So Jesus comes and he's present here. He, he lives his life. He honors God. He sacrifices himself on the cross. He's raised from the dead. He goes to the right hand of the Father. And then what does he do? He sends his spirit to be inside of us his presence marking us. And then what does he do? He commissions the church and says, go and take this into the rest of the world. My presence carried to everyone else. And what's the end of the story? I'm going to come back and you're going to have my presence the way it was always intended to be here with you again. So this whole story is a story of presence. God's, God's presence in the garden, our falling and, and not being able to experience the intimacy of presence that we're intended to, and God's restoration of his presence in us and through us. And so now we're at this point where, you know, it's, it's this incredible thing that we gather as the church. Every single one of us has the full presence of God inside of us. Somehow, when we gather together, it magnifies the presence of God. He was already in the room before we got here, but we bring him and he's magnified here as we go. As you go out into the world to someone that's despairing, you offer hope because as you walk up to them, you bring the presence of God into their life. As we walk into the community around here, we bring the presence of God, the hope, the peace, the joy, the love to bear on the people around about us. So this is all about presence. I want to wrap up with another scripture story that it's just one of those beautiful moments that that we could spend our whole life reflecting on. Um, but it's, it's, it's a declaration of presence. So this is Exodus 33, um, starting in verse 11. And, and let's read Exodus 33, verse 11. He says, The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. There's a statement of presence. You know what it's like when you're with someone that you adore and you have a deep, intimate moment together. That's the height of presence. Um, so Moses, uh, God would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young age, Joshua, did not leave the tent. Moses said to the Lord, you've been telling me, lead these people, but you've not let me know by whom you will, uh, whom you will send me with me. <laughs> you have said, I know you by name, and you've found favor with me. If you're pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Do you feel the intimacy of this moment? Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. There's a relationship between rest internally and his presence. On into verse 11, or on into whatever verse is next. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you're pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you've asked because I'm pleased with you and I know you by name. 
this amazing statement about the presence of God. Like Moses is like, I don't want to go anywhere without your presence. Now remember, Moses, their way of leading, like there's the the tabernacle tent that Moses gets to go meet God in. There's the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire that he gets to be guided by. And, and, and when the things moved, when the, the pillar moved, Moses and the people got up and they followed with it. And he's like, I don't want to go anywhere that you're not. They would go out into battle and they'd pick up the ark and they'd carry it so that God's presence would go with them. So Moses is like, I don't want to go anywhere that your presence isn't. Now remember, we've got the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. There's nowhere we can go that his presence isn't with us. And, 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 you know, there's, there's some scriptures that, that are just crazy in, in your head. Like, you, you read some of this stuff in, in, in the Corinthian correspondence. God's commitment, God with us, is so clear and such a strong commitment that Paul can write to the Corinthian church and says, if you lie with a prostitute, you unite Jesus with the prostitute. That's the extent of his commitment to be present with us. That even as we walk into our sin, he's present. Like, it's, it's insane, the level of presence that he wants to give us. I want to be a person that is marked by the presence of God. I want this to be a community that's marked by the presence of God. I want this Advent season not to be about remembering a story, but encountering the presence of God as we reflect back on what he's done and as we look ahead to what it is that he's promised that he'll do. And then as we encounter that presence, it changes us, and then we get to take that to the people around about us. So we give hope to the despairing. We give peace to the anxious. We give joy to the overwhelmed. We give love to the lonely and the isolated, not because of what we do, but because of the presence that goes with us as we do it. So the last statement up there, God's presence makes all the difference. God's presence makes all the difference. What's the difference between your want and your hope, God's presence. What's the difference between operating in your own strength and honoring God? It's his presence and our pursuit of it. And so as we come into this, this season of Advent, as we're walking ahead and we're saying, God, what do you want to do in this season in our lives, in this church, in this world? The question is, are you aware of God's presence? As you're out shopping, are you attentive to his presence with you? As you're balancing your bank account, are you attentive to God's presence with you? As you're looking at your neighbors and the needs that they have, are you attentive to God's presence with you? And how does that then impact the message and the hope that we get to give to the people around about us? So, so this story, Emmanuel, God with us, if we as a church truly understood and grasped that principle, God with us, how amazingly our lives would be changed and how different this church would look because his power would be free to work in and through us. So let's pray. God, thank you that you're at work. Thank you for the gift of your presence. Thank you for pursuing us. Thank you that you love us, that you come after us, that you choose to be around us, that you choose to indwell us, that somehow we get united to Christ and in all of this, Lord, thank you for presence. Thank you that in our sin, you come chasing after us. Thank you in our most depraved moments, you don't leave us. Um, and God, thank you that as you send us into the world to be your ambassadors, to be your mouthpiece, to be your hands and your feet, you don't send us alone. You promise your presence. Go make disciples, and lo, I am with you always. Presence. So God, would you help us through this season with the chaos of the election, 
the, the racial unrest, the pandemic, the other health issues, the financial worries, the Christmas shopping, the family dynamics, in the middle of all of that, God, would you help us to be aware of your presence? And through that, would you increase our hope? Lord, as we reflect on what you did in Jesus, as you became present here with us, may it increase our confidence that you're returning and that all things will be placed right. And in the meantime, give us perseverance and strength in the middle of what we're doing, and then help us to walk forward and be agents bringing snippets of that heavenly reality to bear in the world round about us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.